Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Paul Harvey, a professor of history at the University of Colorado. His book, Bounds of Their Habitations, Race and Religion in American History, published by Roman and Littlefield, provides an accessible and expansive narrative of the relationship between race, religion, and the American nation from the colonial age to recent times. Harvey encompasses the story of Anglo-Americans, African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, Asian-Americans, and many more, and how their religious experience defined their place within the national promise of religious freedom and pluralism. He demonstrates how religion was a tool of both subjugation and resistance to racial hierarchy. More recently, Muslims, against the tide of religious prejudice and racialization, have sought their place in the nation and new immigrants are changing the face of American Christianity. From the Spanish-American missions in the Southwest to contemporary multi-ethnic urban churches, Harvey demonstrates the unique nature of American culture and how the nation has dealt with religious and racial diversity. As a synthesis of the broad scholarship, Bounds of Their Habitations is a must-read for anyone venturing out to understand this distinctive American phenomenon. Here is my conversation with Paul Harvey. Now let me introduce you to the author, Paul Harvey. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book is a broad but illuminating history of race and religion in America. But before we get into the book, uh, tell us about yourself, your background, uh, how you came to write Bounds of Their Habitation. Sure. I uh, grew up in Oklahoma, uh, in Oklahoma Panhandle, actually, uh, and went to college in Oklahoma and subsequently moved away to California to um, get as far away from Oklahoma and religion as I possibly could. So I ended up in Berkeley, <laughs> uh, where I went to graduate school and got my PhD. That's a little bit of a joke, but not entirely. Uh, anyway, I did get my PhD there and um, had a, a, some postdocs and jobs afterwards, but, but um, and finally ended up here in Colorado Springs, Colorado, at the University of Colorado. And... Uh, I started as a Southern historian. I was interested in writing the history of the of the American South, not really religion per se. Uh, and I wanted to write an, uh, an interracial history of the American South because I thought that Southern history had been defined that the South was a bunch was white people, and then African American history was something different than that. And I wanted to I wanted to write it all together. And it turns out that religion is a really good way to do that. So that's kind of how that got started um, in this in this particular field. And then. As I went along, I increasingly came to define myself as a religious historian, even though I didn't start out that way. But the the past came back to bite me, I guess, to some degree. Um, and so I did. I did a number of books. Have done a number of books about race and religion in the South. And uh, a few years ago, Roman and Littlefield said uh, we have this series, the American Ways series, where people write some kind of broad thematic book for a general audience on something. 
And I had been thinking for a while of doing one about race and religion. Uh, and so I proposed this exact book to them, pretty much exactly as you see it here. And they said, do it. So I did it. Um, but what I, what I really wanted to do was get out of a, a, a white and black people history of race and religion and to try to write a, a multiracial history of religion. Uh, and that's that's what this book is intended to be, as well as, as explore concepts about how race and religion are are related with one another. And what I wanted to do also was to take uh, concepts that uh, get written in academic prose and get discussed by academicians and try to translate it for a general audience. Like, what does racialization mean? What does what does religion mean when religious scholars talk about it? But try to write that in sentences that people actually understand what what I'm saying. Uh, that that was kind of a goal of the book was to translate that scholarship to a more general audience. Well, you just brought up scholarship. Your book draws from just a very large, broad scholarship on religion <clears throat> and race, and it's something that you know we've seen a lot in the last decade or so. What what brought this on? Why has this field exploded? Uh, why has this field exploded? All kinds of reasons. One, the, the longer history of the field is, I think, uh, for historians, and I'm, a histor I'm trained as a historian, religious studies people have a different kind of narrative of their field. But for historians, once you have the introduction of social history, that is, the history of what ordinary people do in American life, what ordinary people do in American life is they do a lot of religion. And so I think the social history revolution created the American religious history revolution in that sense. Uh, and also what people do is they do a lot of race. They think of a lot of things that are bounded by race uh, and their denominations and their various church institutions are most of the time very much bounded by race. And so uh, the, the social history revolution, which created kind of, you know, history of ordinary Americans African-American history, civil rights history, uh, Native American history, and so forth, also created religious history. And I think in more recent years, people have begun to think about how do we put these two things together? Historians have begun to think about how we put these two things together. And so my book, as you say, is basically like a gigantic synthesis of everyone else's work on this subject, with some of my own work as well, and some of my own research. But a lot of it is stuff that I'm really relying on usually very recent work done by other people. Uh, and so uh, I do think that the field is exploding, and I think that our recent conversations about race and religion that came out of, let's say, just to pick something at random, the last electoral cycle, uh, are going to make this field keep exploding, because obviously this is an issue that hasn't, not only has not gone away, but has, has reared its, to some, you know, part of it has reared its ugly head. Okay, now the... This is you do, you do that very well. You you deal with so many different ethnic groups and racial groups and religions. It's just uh, way more colorful than I anticipated. Okay. Oh, I'm glad I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah, it was very colorful. Um, but let's go back to the early part of the book when you talk about uh, colonial America, mm -hmm. and one of the things you talk about in your book is how racial hierarchies are constructed by religion. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? How, how, does, how does religion construct racial hierarchies? Uh, sure. Uh, one of the ways is in, in which, like, who gets to be a Christian and who doesn't? And one of the ways that some, many uh, early Anglo-Americans in particular, define that is, in effect, Christianity is something for a civilized person. A civilized person is a European person, and therefore 
you can fill in the you can fill in the dots from there. Uh, now, at the same time, they had this idea of missionizing Indians, not only Anglo Americans, but you know Spanish uh, people coming over and so forth. Uh, and so uh, the the question that they came to be debating very much was kind of who gets who is fully a human and who isn't. And keep in mind that they're trying to decide whether there was one creation of humanity or whether there were various creations of humanity. And one thing that many Christian people did that was a signal contribution was, for the most part, they did argue for a monogenesis of, of humanity, which is, to some degree is going to lead to a destruction of certain kinds of, of racisms. On the other hand, putting that aside for a moment, uh, they also understand that humanities may exist in different orders or may exist at different levels of the social ladder, for example, or some may be more uh, inherently civilizable than others. So there was a great discussion about um, for, amongst Anglo-Americans are uh, about whether Indians were civilizable or not. That's something that goes on for centuries and whether the gospel should be extended to African-Americans. And so African-Americans are actually in parts of the American South are interested in Christianity uh, through certain Anglican missionaries. And I talk about some of those in the book, but the planters are very much opposed to it. And so I began chapter one of the book with a letter written by anonymously by some slaves that got found later in a, a file of the Bishop of London, but a letter from 1723 in which there are some slaves complaining that their masters don't let them practice their Christianity. Uh, and they say that our taskmasters are as hard on us as were the uh, pharaohs of, of the children of Israel. So it's clear that they have a very, a pretty good knowledge of the Bible just from that, that one line. Um, and so one of the things I talk about in the book is, in is the way in which racial hierarchies are created through American history and at the same time the way in which religious ideas, and I talk most often about Christian ideas, then try to undermine those racial hierarchies. And I think that 1723 letter is a very early kind of, uh, kind of example of that. Uh, but more generally speaking, the, the relationship the, the way in which Christianity comes to be identified as a civilized, a religion of a civilized person, therefore of a white person, is very deep-rooted in the early period of American history. And also the, the Bible could be used uh, in different ways by whoever had it in their hand. Whoever had it in their hands, exactly. You, know, exactly. Could, could, you, could, you could advocate for a racial hierarchy. You could uh, advocate for equality. Uh, you could for you could advocate for slaves being obedient to masters. Yes, yes. There's all kinds of so. Uh, it's interesting that people choose the interpretation that they're going to go with based on their so local their social location. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the way in which uh, whites don't really ever they have a hard time understanding that uh, when. Uh, the Bible is introduced to other populations, they're going to see different, they're going to grab on different narratives than they ever anticipated. And of course, the slaves famously do that in the 19th century, uh, for example. Uh, but there's plenty in the Bible to support social hierarchy. It's not difficult to find support for that. And they, they reiterate those verses endlessly, of course. Right. So then you've got, uh, you also talk about in that early period, you don't just deal with uh, New England, but you're also talking about the the southwest the spanish american yes, southwest right, right. and uh, and the the native americans and the spaniards and then the anglos come in and that whole mix you've got catholicism yeah, yeah, yeah. and you've got race and ethnic origins and it just 
creates a very interesting situation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I introduced that with the uh, the coming of the Spanish to Florida and also to the to the Southwest. I talked about Florida in a different book, actually. I'm thinking about a different book now. But uh, uh, I talk in this particular book about the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, uh, which is the, the really the main successful Indian revolt of really of all of American history, major in, in terms of just eliminating the European population for a period of about 12 or 13 years in New Mexico from 1680 to 1692 or three, something like that. Um, and one of the things that the Spanish learn out of that experience is they're going to have if if they're going to reestablish their colonial empire in what was then northern Mexico, part of northern Mexico, they're going to have to relate differently religiously than they had before. They can't simply impose a hierarchy upon the Indians, which is exactly why the Indians had revolted in the uh, in the first place. So 18th century New Mexico turns out to be a very different kind of place, arguably more pluralistic. I don't know what to use the pluralistic exactly, but uh, a place in which uh, there is a greater intermixture of religious syncretism. Uh, peoples, syncretism, yeah, than would be the case on, on the Anglo-American East Coast uh, colonies, for example. And, of course, New Mexico now has a long, a long history of well, that. Well, I mean, even today, you know, the Taos Indians, there's syncretism there. They're, they practice yeah, both exactly. Catholicism, plus they also practice their native religions. Yeah, yeah, it, and it, that's going on in the 18th century as well. Okay, Um so how did how did uh, religious revivals? And I think you talk about is religious revivals of the eighteenth uh, and nineteenth century, nineteenth century, um, and how they affected the way uh, different racial and ethnic groups interacted with each other. Yeah. So this is sort of a classic example of how things can work both ways at the same time. Uh, so the religious revivals of the eighteenth nineteenth century uh, bring a particular message of what we now call evangelicalism to ordinary people who are responding to it very emotionally. Some of those people turn out to be African-Americans. Some of them turn out to be Indians in the middle colonies, for example. Uh, and um, they, they resonate with the message of equality in the Bible and the message of equality that's preached by some of, these, some of the early evangelicals. Um, at the same time, uh, the, the, the creation of this kind of evangelicalism, especially as you get to the 19th century, is really empowering a mass movement, uh, empowering and accompanying a mass movement of people from the eastern seaboard to what becomes the uh, what Americans in the 19th century called the Southwest, which we would now call the Deep South, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and so forth. And they're bringing slaves with them. In fact, they bring about a million slaves from 1790 to 1860. About a million people make what is now called the, the second middle passage from the older states of older colonies and states to the newer uh, states of the of the 19th century. And they're bringing this kind of religious influences with them. Part of those religious influences go into the Indian wars of the deep south of, of the 19th century and call upon people to exercise their religious mission by creating a Christian white man's republic. Okay, so you got all of those things going on at the same time that are that are really, really complex to try to to try to keep in mind altogether. Okay, and so it's not just that Christianity is for white people. That's not at all what they were preaching. But the kind of Christianity that comes to be the dominant form of Christianity in American history uh, is the kind that explodes in the 19th century and is part and parcel of the creation of a white man's republic, which is what America becomes in the in the 19th century. Um, uh, there was a, a book just published that is called um, 
the common cause creating nation race race and nation of the American Revolution, which was published too late for me to to use it here. Never mind seven hundred page book, so it'll take a while to read before I could put it in here. Uh, but it it makes the argument in great 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 detail that I make in a much shorter way here, which is the the discourse of religion feeds into the creation of how Americans conceive of race in the 19th century and helps to empower this great expansion that goes on. It also helps to empower the mission to the slaves and all this kind of stuff as well. So it has the same sort of complex impact that you see all through this book. Now, is it? I don't know much about the uh, the revivals, uh, the Great Awakenings, um, but isn't it the case that they were happening in camp meetings and not necessarily in, in, in you know church buildings? Uh, yeah. And the fact that they were outside the church building and they were in these open spaces, that uh, that in itself right there sort of knocks the walls out, right? Yeah, yeah. And, so they happen, they happen everywhere in church buildings. Yeah. But the thing that we're interested in is the great camp meetings of Kentucky and Tennessee and Virginia and places like that in the early 19th century. And Go that ahead. right there has, has sort of a democratic feel to it. You know, because yes, it, has a, it has a democratic feel to it. Also because uh, African-Americans are there participating in a segregated way. And so the, the kinds of worship that people had in the 19th century, which is together but separated and segregated, is something that is beginning to emerge out of the, the Great Awakening kinds of environments that you're, that you're talking about. So there's a very democratic feel and there's also a very racially separated feel. Okay, so so now you've got, uh, you have Baptists and Methodist uh, revivalists. Uh, and there's Presbyterians, a, don't forget them. Who? Presbyterians. Presbyterians, too, revivalists. And <laughs> some of these people are ab- also abolitionists. Yes. Okay. Not very many of them in the South, but right, yes. Right, but there's some. some. And so they're, tr- and in the South, at, there was an attempt to evangelize the slaves, and you've got the slave masters going, no, I don't want you to evangelize my slaves because then they'll get uppity, I guess, and think that they uh, have the same rights as I do if they get baptized. What was the issue with baptism? Talk about baptism. Talk about uh, the pushback from the slave masters and what it seems like there was a the Baptists and the Methodists sort of backtracked in the South and said, oh, no, 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 it's going to make them better slaves. Yeah, that did happen to some degree. I think there was an older story that I I want to dispute a little bit that's contained in what your question there, which Uh is that there was this great there used to be this idea that there was this great democratic moment in the 1790s when there were, you know, uh, racially integrated Baptist and Methodist churches. And that could have been the future. But instead, they chose something that was very different. And they they reversed course in the 19th century. And that, that's a little bit implicit in your idea. I used to have that idea myself, actually, to some degree. It turns out that's not all that. It's a little bit true, but not all that true. Mm-hmm. So what happens in the 1790s is when the early Methodist leaders began to say, you know, you really can't be a Methodist and be a slaveholder. Slaveholding Methodists write back to them with hundreds and hundreds of petitions full of what we would now call pro-slavery ideology. No, look at this guy in the Old Testament. He had slaves. Look at Abraham. He had slaves. We have slaves like him, blah, 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 blah. Don't tell us we can't have slaves. And the early Methodist leaders basically say, whoa, okay, got to step back here because these I mean, they really angered their audience and they knew that uh, and they, they came to understand that they were not going to be able to 
um, carry on that uh, that early kind of idea that they had. And Baptist congregates do very much the same thing. In the Virginia Baptist Assembly of 1790, the New Hampshire Baptist leader, John Leland, very famous early Baptist, comes down to Virginia, and he, he introduces a, uh, a sort of moderate anti-slavery resolution, and I think they pass it. And people have made a big deal out of the fact that they passed it in 1790, but I think they passed it because they just respected Leland and they wanted to make him feel good. I think that had more to do with it than anything else. Because what happened after they passed it is hundreds of Baptist congregations wrote to their associations saying, no, we're not going to do that. We don't believe that. We don't think that the Bible makes you be anti-slavery. And so the Baptists immediately, early in the 1790s, they've already backed down from that pretty early. Okay. I think what happens in the 19th century, there were certain slaveholders, of course, who didn't want their slaves to be baptized and so forth. I think that's more true of the early 18th century. And by the early 19th century, um, not so much slaveholders, but the wives of slaveholders, because keep in mind these churches were predominantly women, and women were more involved in early evangelicalism than, than men were. Uh, it's really, in many ways, it's a women's awakening, because they're, they're basically dragging their sons and you know, uncles and so forth to, to church to try to convert them. Um, and so uh, they're they're convincing many of their planter husbands that actually Christianity and slavery can be entirely compatible. And you begin to see in the 1810s and 1820s the, the development of a Christian pro-slavery literature. The one I point to in the book is uh, by Richard Furman, which, who's the namesake of Furman University in South Carolina now, who's an early Baptist leader and who articulates uh, in 1823, the the argument that then becomes the Christian pro-slavery argument. Yes, blacks are human just like us. They have souls. They must be Christianized or they'll go to hell just like white people would go to hell if they're not Christianized. And they'll be better slaves because they'll be better workers because they know that they're supposed to be obedient and all that all that kind of stuff comes out of it. Is that is that sort of a, the benevolent sort of slavery where we're going to be nice to the slaves and take care yeah, of them? Yeah. That kind of and thing? There is a movement towards the the humanitarianization, so to speak, of slavery in the 19th century that goes along with the Christian pro-slave. So a lot of Christian uh, ministers in the South basically say, yes, slaves must be Christianized, but you must also recognize their marriages. And no, don't sell off people, because that's really not a very Christian thing to do. Uh, Okay, occasionally you might have to, but try at least try not to, you know. That kind, that kind of argument. And uh, some of them even argue that, you know, you probably ought to teach your slaves to read because they probably, they're Protestants. Protestants are supposed to read the Bible. Not all that many slaveholders did that or were persuaded by it, but they were, they were hearing the argument that slave literacy might encourage uh, slave Christianization and therefore per- perhaps it should be encouraged. At least they should learn to read the right verses of the Bible. You know, when you talked about the fact that they were pointing to the Bible because the Bible, there were slaves in the Bible. Abraham had slaves and, you know, all these guys had slaves in the Bible. Uh, It reminded me of something that I was thinking about. I don't know if you do this in your book. I didn't catch it talking about Mormons. Uh, Mormons, yeah. And and multiple wives. Yes, yes. (laughs) So (laughs) it it, it didn't seem to work. The, The Bible didn't seem to be used by the Southerners or other people who weren't Mormons, that it was okay for Mormons to have multiple wives because in the Bible, there's lots of men have multiple wives. Yeah. You know, if I had to, (laughs) I I just reviewed a whole bunch of books last year, right after I literally write, I mean, 
like weeks after I finished this book about Mormonism and race. That was a big topic of a bunch of books last year. And I, I would totally rewrite the middle part of this book now to include more. I Honestly, I just didn't know enough. That's why they're not in the book. Uh, I, just, I just didn't have – I didn't feel confident in writing very much of anything. Now I do because <laughs> uh, I've done all this research since then. And uh, so one thing that happens is Mormons are not really white people. Uh, and so that, that makes them, they're kind of, and they're not black people. They're like some other weird race. And there's a whole literature that comes out about trying to figure out what the race of Mormon people are. Uh, and, um, uh, and so because they're not white people, they're not necessarily civilized. And that's why they do uncivilized stuff like have plural marriages and that kind of thing. So that, that's a big part of Protestant literature and the uh, Protestant yeah, anti-Mormon literature in the like- 19th century seems like the the plural marriage argument and the slavery holding argument are kind of parallel if you're going to use the Bible. Yeah, of course, of course, <laughs> just... do that. But it did, it did not appear that way at all to them. <laughs> okay. I think that that's because Mormons are in a completely different category of, of human being, and they can't quite figure out where they are. Mormons, of course, want to prove that they are, in fact, white people. And as you as Mormonism progresses, they increase the I, I don't know the, very much about the history of Mormonism, but they're ethnically white people, right? I mean, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah but, they're, but, they're, but they were uh, they were off white because that's what I call it. I say they were off white. They 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 were not fully white because they were not Protestant. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that's the argument that comes out of the nineteenth century. Uh, Mormonisms are trying to respond to that argument, and they're trying to respond to the. This you know avalanche of anti-Mormon literature that's produced in the 19th century, uh, and so one thing that they do is they begin to adopt the same kinds of racial hierarchies that other Americans adopt. Especially Brigham Young does that. Um, so so uh, Brigham Young, on the one hand, is anti-slavery. On the other hand, he's not really anti-slavery because it's okay to have Indians as slaves, for example, uh, and uh, you need certain kinds of bonded workers to do work and that, and that kind of thing. And he certainly doesn't believe in, in racial equality. Uh, Joseph Smith's a bit more ambiguous. The earlier figure's a bit more ambiguous in this regard. But uh, Brigham Young and then Brigham Young's successors begin to adopt a, the same kinds of ideas about racial hierarchy that, that Americans have. And part of the reason they do that is many reasons, but one of the reasons they do that is because they need to prove that they are, in fact, white people. And if they're going to be true white people, you, there's certain racial hierarchies you have to believe in. There's got to be somebody beneath you in order for you to be There's got to be somebody white. beneath you, yeah. <laughs> and so they, they, they're working the theology of that out over the course, I think, of the second half of the 19th century. And they've pretty well got it figured out by the early 20th century. And they've got it figured out so well that the early black Mormon pioneer, Jane Manning James, uh, who was a house servant for Joseph Smith. She lives until like early 20th century. I can't remember what year she dies. And the last part of her life, she's begging to be fully endowed with all of the privileges of being a member of the Mormon church. And this is someone who's been there from the day one, right? And they just will not do it. They just cannot do it. And it's just a fascinating story. As a friend of mine, Max Mueller, who's about to come out with a book called Race and the Making of the Mormon People, when he comes out with it, you need to interview him, by the way, uh, which which tells the story in great detail. And it, it's completely fascinating and also completely depressing. I don't know anything about Mormonism. Maybe I need to do that. So let me let's talk about um, Reconstruction after the Civil War. Well, you, we know we know a lot of things about the racial issue in the Civil War. But after the Civil War, um, we're trying to reconstruct the nation, reconstruct the South, but also we're trying to construct 
the nation also unify yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. And how does race and religion play into that? Oh, so many different ways. It's hard to summarize, but I'll just tell you a couple of them. So one of the stories that we tell is, of course, the creation of independent black denominations. That's a huge development in the 19th century. And um, as Americans, Americans are trying to figure out what citizenship is going to be in a non-slave republic, because we've always been a white man, slave, and, and republic based on whiteness and slavery. Okay, the republic is still based on whiteness to some degree, but can't be to the same degree, because now black people can also be citizens. But can Chinese people be citizens, for example? And eventually the answer comes to be no, because they're not really Christians. And can Indian people be citizens? And they're trying to figure that out and they're working it out. Well, maybe they can be citizens, but they've got to be landowners and get rid of all this tribal stuff and all the stuff that emerges from the Dawes Act of the of the 1880s. Uh, and so uh, there's a different discourse of race and citizenship. And this is part of the book where I really try to emphasize the the impact of different racial ideas amongst different groups. So. Black people are honorary citizens of the republic because they've been here so long, first of all, and secondly, because they they express themselves through Christian ideas. Uh, and so they, they get to be at least at least partial citizens, although very partial and lesser gets less so as the 19th century progresses. You get to the Jim Crow era. Uh, and that's that's not true of uh, Asian Americans and and um, and uh, uh, Indians at the same time. Mm. So I call this chapter Race and the Reconstruction of Citizenship for that reason. Race, we, religion, reconstruction of citizenship for that reason. And also uh, Anglo-Americans, Protestants are also uh, discovering in a new way uh, Asian religions. Yeah, And yeah. you talk about the creation of uh, the invention of Hinduism. Yes, yes. And so I, I, to talk about that. I think that's really interesting because we don't really, we don't. Re and also, I noticed the uh, you had the um, the World Parliament of Religions in 1893 at the World's yeah. Fair, which where you have some yogi coming and speaking. He becomes a big celebrity. I think all that fascination with the East, yes, and, yes. Tr and trying to try fascination with the East and trying to find commonalities between Eastern religions and Christianity, and sort of say, well, they're kind of like us. Uh, you know, we share these things. Actually, Christianity is a true religion. They're just sort of a different expression of something. <laughs> they may be corrupted, yeah. but they they're, they're hope. There's hope for them. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read. This is a complex story, but I'm, I'm gonna yeah. read a sentence from the book, sure. which kind of summarizes it. Uh, Thus, the 19th century paradox: intellectual longing for grasping the mysteries of Asian religions together with contempt for and eventual exclusion of Asian people. And this carried forward into the 20th century. Intellectual hunger, Orientalist writing, and nativism together made up a package that essentialized Asian religions and racialized Asian peoples. So that, that's a, a couple of sentences which basically try to summarize all this stuff from like Emerson and Thoreau and those guys or, and some other lesser known 19th century figures who get, they get kind of fascinated by Asian religions. And they're, they're the ones who are inventing like, what is Hinduism? They're just basically making that up. In fact, uh, uh, not, not just them, but some British scholars as well sort of create the word and create the, the idea that there is this thing called Hinduism in the first place. And, and what is Buddhism and how is it related to Christianity? So they're, they're trying to work through all that stuff. As the 19th century progresses, uh, there is a kind of idea that there are all these religions out there. This this becomes the World Parliament of Religion in 1893. So there's all these religions out there, and they all have some pretty good ideas. 
But when you add it all up, when you add all the good ideas up and put them into one religion, it's liberal Protestantism. That's the summa of all religions. And all this other stuff kind of kind of leads up to it and is a, like a building blocks to, to liberal Protestantism. That's basically the message that's conveyed through. That's the idea of the world's parliament of religions. Of course, Asian religion practitioners are there and they push back against that idea. Um, and uh, quite and I quote some of them in, in the book as well. Now, that's uh, the whole thing of Asian religions, and then you're talking also about there's uh, early, late 19th century, early 20th century, you have a vast immigration of Catholics, Jewish people. Um, What do we do with, what do we do with these people? (laughs) You know, a few, a few Jewish people is okay. Yeah. Too many of them becomes a problem, especially if they are of the more conservative sort of a little odd kind of expression. Yeah, especially if they're from too far east in Europe. Right, exactly. Right. So talk about that, and uh, you talked about reform, uh, reform Judaism being a sort of an American product of America as these immigrants come in and trying to these rabbis trying to offer Jewish people uh, Jew, keep keep them Jewish, but give them something that is more palatable to to the American ethos. Yeah, so we have a we have a, a discussion, a discourse. I think in the early 20th century, that's exactly like our discourse now. I never thought that we would relive the early 20th century quite so clearly. I was reading an article the other day about our current Attorney General uh, William Jefferson Sessions, um, uh, Jeff Sessions, and um, uh, he was talking about how the 1924 immigration law, which really restricted immigration amongst the very people you're talking about, was a really good thing for America. And I was shocking to read that from the current attorney. But what he was really saying, and he gets his ideas from Stephen Bannon and the Clash of Civilizations, and their idea is too much pluralism is a bad thing, and we got to stop it. So our, our current administration has that idea, unfortunately, and that's exactly the idea that is percolating through American culture in the early 20th century that results in the immigration law of 1924. At the same time, progressive thinkers are, in fact, they're, they're, they invent the word pluralism, first of all. That's, that when it, that's cu- when it comes to be used most commonly. And they have this idea that, um, you know, America is enriched by pluralism uh, and by plural religions and plural ideas and so forth. And so they, they really want to encourage the idea of America as a diverse society. So they're, they're, that's the discourse that's going on. It's those kinds of progressive pluralists who are really um, uh, fighting about the idea of America with these kind of nativist uh, thinkers uh, uh, of the early 20th century. Uh, not unlike 2017, I would say. But, not unlike 2017. What I noticed after reading the, the whole book is it, I noticed that when you're talking about, you know, Catholic, Jewish, Asian religions, Native American religions, all these different <laughs> flavors of, of religious expression, that they <laughs> they changed the nation but they also changed those religions. Those all those religions seem to become Americanized in some way. Well, well, they become Americanized in the sense that um, uh, American American life produces some. Uh, it tends to produce some kinds of religious institutions that tend to be more successful, more congregationalist, more locally oriented, more democratic kinds of religion. So, re- like Reform Judaism is invented in, in the United States of America in the 19th century for exactly this kind of reason. Uh, and uh, Asian religions come to have, uh, well, many Asians get Christianized, Asian Americans get Christianized in the 20th century, but those who are still practicing 
practicing Buddhism and so forth. So they write hymns like, uh, Buddha loves me, this I know, for the sutra tells me so, that kind of stuff. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. The reason I'm saying this, I've noted this, uh, uh, Catholicism in, in Latin America, for instance, is yeah. a very, di- very different flavor from Catholicism in the United <laughs> States. Okay, yes. even though they're all attached to the Vatican, it's, right, a, right, it's right. almost like the Catholicism in the United States is more Protestantized. Okay, because you, if you go to a Catholic church in Latin America, you're going to get a lot of icons, a lot of uh, almost pre-Vatican II sort of orientation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in the United States, uh, the if you walk into a Catholic church, you know you could be in an Episcopal church. I mean, right. they they're very much more. Uh, I say they're kind of Protestantized. Uh, they've got the whole. Well, they're, they're, they're more Vatican Twoized, right? Yeah, and they're, they're it's it's a totally different flavor, and I think that that's part of the trying to fit into American culture, you know. Uh, yeah, but also the thing is that in. Um, if you had gone pre-1960, I think you would have seen a lot more of that in, in American right. Catholic history, for example. But part of it, too, is um, you have these interesting um, uh, ethnic hierarchies that develop within American Catholicism. And so what has less the case now, but what historically was the case was in bigger cities in the mid-20th century, you would have generally ethnically Irish or Polish uh, priests governing congregations that were increasingly made up of Italians and then later on of African-Americans and then much later on of Latinos. Uh, and so and there, there was a lot of uh, pushback by con- congregants, especially Latinos in the 60s and 70s. This is what you know about from your work on liberation theology going, we, how come all of our priests are Irish? Like, how come we can't have any Latino and how, how come there's no Latino bishops? Right. That's what hermanos and uh, I mean, uh, padres and hermanas and those kind of groups that come in the 60s and 70s uh, are a reaction precisely to that development. Well, part of it is that Latin America itself is having to bring in missionary priests because they have a shortage of priests in Latin America. They have a shortage of priests. Yeah. And they're yeah. bringing in they're bringing in North, North Americans and Europeans. Yeah. So and nowadays, I should say, uh, uh, I just read a, st- a statistic that um, American Catholic churches are now 40 percent Latino, and that's likely to go up to probably 50 percent over the next decade or two. Uh, and so uh, and th- this is not an unusual story in American history. So uh, Catholic churches that would have been predominantly German or English or whatever in the early 19th century, you know, by the 1860, 1860s, 1870s would have been overwhelmingly Irish. Right. And then the early 20th century, some of them would have been overwhelmingly Polish or Italian or other Eastern Europeans. Uh, and so we're, we're entering kind of a new era of the ethnic transformation of American Catholicism that I think is quite interesting to watch. You were t- you're, one thing that you said about Jewish people was in the early America that they seemed to be uh, there were some and they were ex- generally accepted. Uh, yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. They're German Jews, basically, is why. OK. And then. Um... When the uh, the wave of immigration comes from the East East Eastern European Jews, right, 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 that's when everybody starts getting a little nervous. Yeah, because early Jewish immigration is so small, and they're not congregated in urban areas like the Lower East Side of New York and places like that. So when you see that kind of stuff develop in the early 20th century, and when you go to 
uh, a, a large East Coast city and go through entire neighborhoods where everybody's speaking Yiddish or everybody's speaking Polish or everybody's speaking whatever. That's that's the kind of stuff that that freaks people out and then the Anglo-Americans out of the early early 20th century and is, is leading them to, to immigration restriction. And also because they don't know, like, how are these people going to assimilate into America? They just can't figure that out. Uh, and, they're, and they're trying to um, uh, and many of them just don't think that they can. And they see evidence all around them that they can't because they're not speaking English and they're eating weird foods and stuff like that. Right. Okay, let's go to uh, Pentecostalism, which was an interesting little story, which I didn't know all that story, but uh, how much African-Americans were part of this uh, Pentecostal emergence. Uh, Talk about that, that whole... Yeah, so, absolutely. So Pentecostalism is easily the most important religious... Christian religious uh, group of the 20th century forward, I think, and is now sweeping over the, the, the country, uh, the, the, the world, I should say. Uh, so Pentecostalism emerges from various groups of the late 19th century, but really takes hold in the early 20th century. And uh, a group of people congregate in Los Angeles in 1906, led by an African-American minister, uh, William Seymour, uh, but there's people from all over the world who end up congregating with him, uh, receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. And this is, this movement just kind of explodes everywhere from there. What's interesting to me in Pentecostals is they later on, not much later on, in fact, they, they start to write out this story from their own history because they're, they're trying to whitewash, literally speaking, whitewash uh, their, their own history. And it's only been recently that a figure like Seymour and the, the very international flavor of early Pentecostalism, is it's been recovered now by scholars uh, who are looking at the documents. And the Pentecostals now are actually very proud of this, but for many decades they weren't. They, kind, they tried to sort of push it aside. Now, Pentecostalism, are, from what I'm reading, I don't know much about it either, uh, it, is a, it, was, it started in the United States? Or did uh, yeah, it come so, from other parts of the world? Did it come from somewhere well, else? There's lots of debate about this kind of stuff, but it, it basically started in the United States and Canada, I would say. Canada is actually quite important to the early history of Pentecostalism because Amy Sybil McPherson comes from Canada, for example. Um, and uh, But it's basically an American development, a little bit in England maybe as well. In which, and the, the idea is that uh, you can receive different – so you receive Jesus and you become a Protestant. You can be a Protestant Christian, but there are different levels above and beyond just receiving Jesus. So you can also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, and the, the Holy Spirit then cleanses you entirely and makes you into a, a perfect vessel of God. Now, what is the evidence that you have actually received the Holy Spirit? Um, the Pentecostals say the evidence is speaking in tongues, because that's what the Spirit does in the Bible, in the book of Acts, and therefore it's what it, it can, continues to do today. And what are some other evidences? Divine healing is very important in early Pentecostalism, because that, that's evidence that the Spirit is in you, that you can divinely heal someone else. So divine healing and speaking in tongues, and various ideas about the millennium. So premillennialism comes out of this era as well, this idea that the world is going to come to this apocalyptic end, and it's probably going to be like a few weeks from now uh, when that happens. Uh, I'm kidding, but not, not too much. <laughs> well, the, sociologically, sociologically what, what kinds of people are involved in this movement? Yeah, uh, it used to, the idea used to be that it was all these kind of poor, downtrodden people, and there's certainly some of them, 
but, you know, these people had to get to Los Angeles. They couldn't have been that poor. They're like coming from Scandinavia to get to Los Angeles. So there's a lot of um, what uh, I would call religious seekers, uh, some of them poor, but a lot of them not so poor. And they're, they're seeking something that uh, the conventional denominations by that time have not provided to them. Uh, and so the, the kinds of things that people, the kinds of things that religious seekers do now to seek religious experiences, I think they're doing the same thing then and they find it in Pentecostalism because it gives them a more profoundly uh, physical embodiment of a religious experience that that i think is the great contribution of pentecostalism did didn't pentecostalism later on like in the 60s and 70s really begin to infect the mainline churches oh yeah yeah absolutely. the charismatic so, movement the charismatic yeah, yeah charismatic churches are basically just ordinary protestant churches that adopt various kinds of pentecostal practices uh because they they understand that these are these are things that are very attractive to people to be seized by the spirit is something that you you know a Christian would want. Who would not want to be seized by the Holy Spirit, for example? And uh, Pentecostals, of course, are great uh, musical innovators. A lot of the great music of America from the 20th century came out of Pentecostal churches. Uh, what what became soul music and R and B and all that kind of that basically is Pentecostal music, um, and uh, combined with blues. And so, uh, and who doesn't want great music in their churches, right? And so, charismatic churches adopt some of that that Pentecostal stuff because it, it's it allows a kind of a level of physical expression, and it, it frees a kind of uh, Protestant who's been constricted in physical expression to physically express himself or herself. It makes me just wonder: is Pentecostalism sort of an outgrowth of of a lingering like slave religion? And black church religion before Pentecostalism is it an, is it a, a different manifestation of that? Because black churches have all have been emphasizing the spirit forever before Pentecostalism. Yeah. I think Pentecostalism is a agglomeration of many traditions that start to emerge in the 19th century, uh, including like New Thought and metaphysical movements. That's actually part of early Pentecostalism. But one of those things is uh, slave religion. And in particular, the the largest black denomination in Pentecostalism, the Church of God in Christ, uh, formed by Charles Harrison Mason in the early 20th century. So he's very conscious of the of the reviving of slave of traditions of slave Christianity, which had been repressed by the sort of standard black churches. They they thought them embarrassing and uncivilized and stuff like that. And he wanted to recapture them. So there's a famous picture of him holding up uh, some plants that were basically roots that would induce divine healing. And so he says, uh, basically, this is, uh, and root work comes out of slave religion, conjurers and stuff like that. And he is not embarrassed to advertise that as something that is a part of his church something that no other black denomination would be caught dead doing in the early 20th century. Well, this would be an interesting study. Pentecostalism would be interesting for William James to take up, huh? Yes, exactly, exactly. I would, See, love, to, fact, love, his take, I would love to hear his take on this. I think he did write about it. I've got to look that up, actually. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's exactly the kind of thing that he was interested in, yeah, that kind of religious experience. Okay, so then you go. You, you talk about the African American Church and civil rights, and then you you bring in, of course, La Raza and other groups uh, that were also had civil rights issues to address, and how religion fit into that. Uh, it, it seems like we all know something about African American religion and the connection to civil rights. 
that seems to be, I think, kind of pretty well known with Martin Luther yeah, King yeah, and yeah. all the pastors and churches that were involved. Yeah, what, yeah. Is it, what is it that we don't know that your book can tell us? Uh, about race and religion. Uh, about and the civil, civil rights, rights movement and, and, and yeah. the African-American church. One thing, some of you listeners may know this, but I think a general audience probably doesn't, is the degree to which that connection of race, religion, and civil rights came out of not just uh, black churches, but also became part and parcel of Native American movements, of Latino movements, of Asian American movements, and Asian American liberation theology. And in other words, the same, the same logic that uh, leads Martin Luther King to develop the kind of ideas that he has, it uh, very much impacts and is very much a part of uh, and very much stems from a lot of these other groups as well. And so I try to tell the story of some of the people in those groups, best known of whom would be Cesar Chavez, of course, but then there would be some various uh, Native American religious thinkers leading up to Vine Deloria uh, and uh, various Asian American uh, uh, theologians that emerged from this era as well. Uh, and so I think that I think it's a bigger story beyond just kind of the black civil rights movement, even though I certainly emphasize that here. But I, I think that's a story that's not very well known to a lot of readers. And I hope to tell at least a little bit of that. Yeah. And the the story about uh, Cesar Chavez was very interesting. I, I'd like for you to, to talk a little bit about more about that. Because... Yeah. So Chavez is very interesting because, uh, of course, he comes out of this particular Latino uh, Catholic background, but he's also very much influenced and works with a lot of kind of left-wing Protestant social gospelers. And to me, the genius of Chavez is he kind of puts together those two things that is parallel to the way in which Martin Luther King comes out of the black church, but also is trained by, in seminary, uh, uh, social gospel personalist philosophers and thinkers. And his genius is he puts those two things together and it's sort of the intellectual side of the social gospel and the kind of the spirit-filled side of the black church. And I think Chavez does very much the same thing with his particular religious background and training combined with the people that he's working with in the, in the farm workers movement. Uh, so I, I see them as very much parallel in uh, how they, how they syncretize different kinds of religious traditions to empower social movements. Okay. The, um, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna talk about the religious right, even though we could, because uh, I want to. I want to get to something else. I want to get to uh, today. Yes. The issue of, of of Muslim Americans. Yeah. And how they're being racialized. Yeah. And how they're fighting to be included in America's pluralism and in America's religious freedom and the pushback. Yeah. Talk about it's like the story is just over every you know every ten years we get go through this again. Okay. Yeah. So. No, I I see this as exactly the story of the of 1925. Uh, and so the same kind of story that uh, impacted Jews and and uh, different kinds of Catholics and some uh, Asians at that at that era is being replaced. Who are are whose religions are condemned and racialized in pretty much exactly the same way that uh, 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 Muslim Americans are are having that thing having that happen to them today. And at the same time, and so, and so you have a political leadership and a kind of intellectual leadership that thinks pluralism, American pluralism, has gone too far and needs to be reversed. Okay, so Steve Bannon, for example, the president's chief strategist, that, that's exactly his philosophy. Uh, and, and Jeff Sessions that I talked about before, this exact, exactly. And they make you know, no bones about it. They're very clear on what they want. Uh, at the meantime, you have all of these uh, 
uh, advocates of pluralism, some of whom come out of various religious traditions, who are very much aware of the fact that we are replaying these terrible, these great mistakes of the past, uh, and are making kinds of arguments for American religious pluralism, applying them in this case to uh, Islam in America. Uh, and so I, re I really see us. Uh, I'm not one to say history goes in cycles and repeat stuff. I normally push back against that. In this case, I don't push back because I, I really do think it's true. But it, but in another way, like I said before, it, they uh, is uh, Muslim people are also in America are changing themselves. America is changing them. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's like it's changing the country. It's changing them. Do you think that we'll cycle out of this? Yeah. God forbid we get out of this dip that we've got right now, but uh, there will be a, a place of equilibrium. Uh, well, we'll see. I think what's happening, what, what's fascinating to me, if you look at kind of the internal history of Islam in America is, so in the 20th century, black Islam comes to be a force, and Orthodox Islamic people, don't understand black Islam as orthodox in any way. Right. So they're saying, no, that that's wrong. That doesn't really, that their stories are off and it's, you know, they want, uh, Islam was supposed to be universal. It's not supposed to be racialized and uh, black Islamic leaders push back against that. That's very much the same kind of internal debates that historically always go on amongst all kinds of different religious groups. What really is our religion? What is kind of the fundamental baseline of our religion? And they, they, they find, and everyone thinks they know what that is until someone comes up with a different baseline of your religion. And then you say, right. no, 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 that's not right. So they're, they're, they're going through this. Well, yeah. That's what right. Protestants did to Pentecostals in the early 20th century. Yeah. They're trying to de-Protestantize them. They're not really us, right? Right. And then, you know, there's scholars are talking about that there's an internal war within Islam and trying to define who they are. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they don't have the Vatican, you know, or, or some, uh, hierarchy to tell them. And so there's all, there's, I think there will be, and there already probably is a very much American expression of Islam. Oh, totally. Absolutely is, right? Uh, and so you have female Im imams in America, for example. You know, that's not something you have in a lot of other places. And you have congregationalist, what I would call congregationalist, uh, versions of Islam, congregationalist mosques who really want to run their own affairs locally. And you got people issuing very, Islam is structural like Protestantism. Like if you have a religious vision, you just enunciate it. And if you have some leaders, then then it becomes part of the tradition because there's not there's not something like Catholicism where there's some central guy to kind of stamp that stuff out. So I, the irony is I, I really see American Protestantism and American Islam operating structurally and sociologically along many of the similar so, many similar lines. So you would think they would have an easier time uh, fitting in. Yeah, but that's not the case, obviously. Yeah. Right. And, the other, and the other thing that was really interesting is that a lot of people talk about, oh, part of the race problem in America is we need to have multiracial churches. You know, we've got too much segregation in the churches. Yeah, and, yeah, and so people yeah. will point to certain churches that are, these are multiracial churches where there's all kinds yeah. of people. And that sounds really idyllic and wonderful. But you point yeah. out some, some things that are still enduring problems in these multiracial churches. That even the people within those churches are seeing the race issue differently. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, there's a there's an honorable there's a reason that we honor that people desire multiracial churches because they really want you know Christian brotherhood or Islamic brotherhood or what a Jewish brotherhood whatever religious tradition they come from. Um, and at the same time, uh, 
because race has structured American life so fundamentally, the people, the multiracial people are coming to those churches, come out it with completely different experiences of life and completely different understandings of how society is structured. So I give an example in the book of this. I got this out of a New York Times article a year or two ago of a, a multiracial church, but mostly white and black people in South Carolina, where and it's a successful multiracial church, but it's only successful because they have an implicit contract that they will not discuss politics with one another and they will not discuss these other con because they, they know that they have fundamentally different experiences in life that leads them to fundamentally different political views and they can't talk about it. They have to prohibit that discussion, implicitly prohibit that discussion. But because they've done a, that, yeah, that to me that that's a, a sign of, of a very weak or no political theology at all. Yeah, but the people in that church don't think that way because they they really think that there's this thing called religion that we can experience together, and then we can go home and go to the polls and vote separately or whatever, and that's that's also fine, and that that's the way they see it basically. But that that's that's pretty typical of American evangelicals to see it that way. It's a, I think it's a a kind of facile view, but there okay. it is. Okay, Paul, tell us now, um, final question, what what do you want the readers to take away from this? I hope they take away the way in which race and religion operate together in American history, the way race structures religion in certain kinds of ways, and then the way that religion structures the way that we think about race. Uh, and those two things become intertwined but we don't have to leave them intertwined because there's lots of people in this book who step outside of the little the sort of ball that's created when these these yarn pieces are intertwined and are able to say, no, look, when you step outside of this, you see things differently. Uh, and so I think the story of race and religion explains how we came to be, but it also gives us some models for how things can be different. OK, thank you, Paul. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can contact me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 